Are you ready to challenge your rhetoric? Today is Wednesday, May 11th. My name is Sherry Roberts, and I'm your host on Challenging the Rhetoric. Welcome to the show. A lot of things have happened in both the Oregon standoff and the Bundy Ranch cases over the last week or so. Uh, for instance, Clive and Bundy has filed a lawsuit against the President of the United States, as well as against Senator Harry Reid. The problem with naming old Harry Reid is this. Harry Reid, the senator, does not own the land in question. In fact, that land was owned by someone named Laverne Reid, who happens to be a Bundy cousin. But hey, we haven't heard much that has turned out to be true from many of Cliven's claims. So, you know, I mean, there it is. Also, something that has come out, and this, this came out today, or at least I saw it today. It may have come out yesterday. He essentially put out a jailhouse message uh, from Nevada via his girlfriend, Deb Jordan, saying that all the cases are going to fall apart. Now, is that a false hope for himself? Was it false hope for the others in saying that and the people that are supporting and believing? Uh, the, the majority of the people out there think so, but who knows? I mean, maybe they really do know something everybody else doesn't know. I doubt that, but it's possible, I suppose. Um, Sam Tilly will be transferred back to Inverness Jail in Multnomah County, Portland, Oregon, uh, pretty soon here. And I don't know the exact date on that because I also didn't check before the show, but I, I do know that that is what is slated to happen here, I think, in the next few days or a week or something to that effect. Uh, Jordan also did tell her listeners, her and Pete's listeners, that Cliven was going to be starting the process of trying to separate his case from the others in the Nevada case. For what purpose, uh, we don't know yet, but it's really pro- very probable, very likely that he believes that if he can separate his case out, it's going to affect the conspiracy charges against all of them. I doubt very seriously U.S. attorneys are going to let that happen if that's the case and it's something that would actually hurt the case in some weird way. Um, and, and you know, I, I don't know exactly how that works, but that could be the only thing that makes sense of why he would do so. Um, unless it has anything to do with Mike Arnold's post that he did with regards to uh, sovereign citizens, which he is now very adamantly denouncing and trying to separate from all of that. He still has all the same keyboard cowboys attached to him that uh, feel that they are these patriot sovereigns as well. So I don't know how that's going to work out for uh, old Mike Arnold over at Arnold Law Firm, but, you know, that's that's what's going on with that. So um, will Cliven be able to separate his case? I don't know. But you know who should? I've been saying this from the very beginning. I've said it multiple times, and that's Pete Santilli. Because Pete Santilli, his whole platform of response to this isn't just a First Amendment right, it's a First Amendment right as a journalist. And oddly, he and all of his supporters and followers uh, are not supporting him or behaving like a journalist. In fact, they're still doing the whole us and we, and um, you know they're playing patriot versus if Pete Santilli is really a journalist, then he absolutely needs to have them separating his case. And he hasn't done that thus far that has been publicly acknowledged in any way, although he was transferred before the others. He's had cases out. So who knows? Maybe that's happened kind of in the background and we don't know yet. But that is what he should do because Pete Santilli did a lot of things wrong. And I don't necessarily consider Pete Santilli a journalist. He did have a talk show. He was an entertainer. He purported to tell news, but it 
some things were that he said were based on nuggets of truth and then expanded on either by whoever he got it from or himself or, or people who passed it on beyond him or whatever. And I'm not making excuses for Sam Tilly. The point is, is that he's playing journalist in the courts and everything coming out from Deb and Mo and all these people attached to him, but he's not behaving like one still, and that's what got him there to begin with. So, you know, hopefully, uh, if any of uh, those followers and, and fans of Santillis are listening and you have any poll, you should really pay attention. I am uh, trying to give you a lot of information here that could help your, your you know, your, your patriot there. So the other thing is uh, the Sharp family, who's been heavily involved in the Bundy antics since at least 2014 Bundy Ranch episode, um, they also experienced a recent arrest a, a couple weeks ago. Uh, Odell is Sharp, and she's the mother of Victoria Sharp, who was in Lavoie Finnegan's SUV uh, when uh, the others were apprehended, Shauna Cox and, and Ryan Bundy, and, of course, when Lavoie Finnegan was shot and killed. Uh, her, her Five of her children reported her and turned her in for child abuse. And, um, you know, Adela's claims biblical sanction of her abuse, of what she did. It's, it's, you know, it's okay because it's Bible-based or something like that. Obviously, her kids didn't think so. Obviously, the state so far doesn't think so. We'll see how that all pans out. But there is a really important message that I want to convey about that situation particularly, and it's something that I touched on in other ways, uh, many weeks ago, but and I want to revisit it with this particular uh, case. So we'll do that in the latter half of the show. It's a two-hour show tonight, by the way. My second guest, however, uh, Louis Arthur is he Arthur. He's right in the middle of something. Uh, people know him as Louis Prepper, but he's right in the middle of something right now. I posted a video earlier so that the listeners knew what he was doing and got a little taste of kind of what he's all about right now. And um, so hopefully that works out, uh, and it looks like it's going to. But uh, it's particularly with him that we're going to delve a little bit more into Odell is Sharp. There was yet another Oregon standoff character arrested last week. The Voice Idaho founder, Michael Emery, was arrested on weapons charges. After a search warrant was issued, the FBI had raided his vehicle and his fiscal trailer that was at the Grant County Fairgrounds trailer park where Emery was found to have a stolen 50 cal M2 or a Mod Deuce machine gun. So according to this arrest warrant, Emery had admitted, okay, now the, and, and for those listening, some people have a search warrant and some people have an arrest warrant. And many of the claims that the people that only have one or are only looking at one, and sorry, i got to interject this because it's really important, they're, they're thinking they're finding these weird smoking guns, pun intended, but they need to be looking at both because they are two separate things and they are both very relevant in order to tell any story. And you really can't tell the story without having both. So on that note, anyways, the, you know, they issued the warrant and they found this. The machine gun was uh, found, I believe, in his vehicle, whereas they also found explosives and they found explosives under his bed. Um, and now I'm assuming they mean the bed in the trailer, but is it the bed of the vehicle? I, 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 you know, they, they weren't clear on that. In fact, there's a whole lot of things that are unclear specifically about the explosives that were found. So we're waiting for more information on that. I do not know exactly what, you know, quantity uh, of what kind um, or anything like that. And if it's come out today, I, I completely missed it and have no problem saying so. Um, but the thing is, is that, Initially, there were a lot of people that wanted to come out and like, no way, and of course, all the supporters of not just the people involved, but of the, the cause and, and, and the standoff and, and those sorts of things. And unfortunately, 
they ran out there, including Vicki Davis, who works for uh, The Voice of Idaho. She's their primary writer. Um, you know, right away was going out and parroting uh, Mike Emery's wife, Becky Hudson's message of what she said had happened. And, and um, some of that was true, and some of it wasn't true. And, and so the point there is, is that having all these bits and pieces of information and putting it out right, you want to rush out and say something to your followers or, or your fans or your readers or viewers or whatever, um, or whoever they are. But you want to make sure you have it right. And Vicki Davis apparently didn't know that Michael Emery has a very, very, very long history of exactly this, of making his own guns and weapons, and particularly bombs. And, in fact, in 2002, there was a very, very big uh, case in Tennessee, a drug case in Tennessee, that Michael Emery had uh, made, uh, manufactured, and provided uh, weapons, guns, and made at least one bomb for, and he basically negotiated his freedom uh, by becoming a government witness. Now, Becky Hudson, his wife, on January 25th, on Michael Emery's page, she's the one that does most of the posting on his page, and she's usually pretty good at letting you know that she's the one doing it because she wants everybody to know that Michael Emery's her husband, and that's how she uh, does her little um, sign-off on it, her postscript. But um, anyways, January 21st, 20, 25th, she posted this whole thing, and was obviously there were some issues, which we're going to talk about. Uh, Mark and I, when he comes back on, Mark McConnell's going to be back. We're going to talk about a little bit about uh, Michael Emery because it, it parlays into what I'm saying right now. So on the 25th of January, Becky makes this post on his page. There's obviously some kind of a conflict because she's sticking up for him and even saying that he doesn't know she's doing it and might be mad. And she gives out all this information on his background. Now, I don't know if somebody found this very document. I think it has something to do with kind of what was going on in his stance at that time down in Burns, Oregon, as, as I said, we'll talk about. But he you know, part of what she said may be true, but there's a lot of what she said that I don't believe it. Uh, pretty much everybody I know that's read it uh, in, in, that I've talked to in the last uh, 24, 48 hours also doesn't believe it. There, it, it. It doesn't make sense. It's it's very convoluted and, you know, so on and so forth. But what I can tell you is that Michael Emery, for all intents and purposes, with actual real documentation. He may have been a nice guy. He may be a nice guy. I'm not necessarily saying that, but he is not this innocent old man with a microphone and camera that so many people thought him to be. So, I mean, that's just the way it is. Of course, they're doing all their spin, um, but I do want to give kudos to one of the YouTubers out there, uh, one that I never give kudos to, but they deserve it this time around, Philip Danny Sasser, better known as Professor Doom. Uh, he put out a video yesterday claiming proof that Emery, uh, in a conference call with several other participants, so it was like Emery and three or four others, according to Doom, uh, and in that call he was in a very heated argument with somebody, and they were talking about weapons, and, and this all according to what Doom said, but that Emery had talked about this, uh, this 50 cal M2, and he also talked about, very specifically, just like the FBI um, arrest warrant said, and that Michael Emery had admitted to obliterating, that is his word, not mine, obliterating the serial number off there, which is a federal crime in itself. So I do want to give some kudos to Doom because at least he looked into the possibility that there was more to the story and recognized that things like this do a lot of harm to any movement, regardless of what that movement is. So we're going to talk more about Michael Emery later in the show with one of my guests as well. Well, I already said that was uh, here with Mark. So uh, coming up along with Mark, you know, Mark is Arizona 3% leader. 
Um, he's been here twice. This is his third time. I told you, I promise you, that I bring him back. I have a lot of people that keep asking for more with regards to uh, hearing uh, the, the little bits and pieces that Mark is able to use to shed light and fill in some of the gaps of what most people heard in general media coverage. So Mark's going to come back, but also I have uh, someone new I'm bringing on the show if everything works out, and that is the founder of Veterans on Patrol. Now, Lewis Arthur. Lewis, uh, you know, like McConnell, he was also at the Malheur Refuge, um, but he was also at Bundy Ranch in 2014. So there's more to the story that, again, parlays into the current story. So uh, before I bring McConnell on real quick, I I just want to tell everybody, you can uh, interact with me at facebook.com forward slash challengingrhetoric.news or on uh, Twitter at CTR Newsfeed. There is no calls at all tonight, but uh, you can jump in the live chat room and, again, be very, as always, be very respectful, be civil to one another. We can talk. This is a a dialogue, not a debate. We don't need to attack. I won't tolerate any of that. So, um, you know, there it is there. So, Mark, I am so glad to have you back again. Uh, My listeners are probably much uh, even happier than I because I still want to cover some other news, but they just keep asking for more and more. So, uh, Mark McConnell, welcome back. Hi, Sherry. Thanks for having me back on. Ah, That was a whole mouthful I had to say in a short period of time. I think I was running a couple minutes late for you. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) There's just a whole lot of stuff that happened. I appreciate it. There's been so many things that have happened literally ever since you were here last. So it's like, oh, where do we start? Um, it makes sense to me uh, since Michael Emery was in Burns, Oregon and in and out of the refuge, and we haven't really discussed much about him uh, before on the show with you. So it makes sense to me for you to be able to take this opportunity to fill in some of the gaps on Michael Emery's participation in the standoff itself and being a reporter, as he claims to be, and so on and so forth. Mark? Well, I've seen him up there. He really, he never struck me as being a reporter. Um, you know, that's what he, he did try to pass himself off on, but he had too many conversations either in HQ or with Ryan Payne or even with Jason Patrick to actually be a reporter. Was uh was he involved in uh, – it's funny because I have to choose the right questions because it's such a mixed audience um, and not always be redundant. Was he involved in actual, like, operational stuff of of what was happening at the refuge or operational stuff of what was happening outside the refuge, like with his Idaho 3%, uh, as well as, like, PPN and stuff like that? I mean, was he doing – what was he kind of doing that was not so reporterly? He he really he really wasn't even paying attention to the story as so much as um, you know basically just bouncing back and forth between people. You know he seemed like he was trying to more or less sideline coach what was going on. I saw some of the um, videos that he did from the refuge, and uh, I I happen to have been longtime Facebook friends with Becky Hudson. Uh, and we didn't engage and interact much. Uh, we had reasons why we followed one another. It's kind of one of those keep your enemies close kind of thing and not sure if we're enemies or not. But um, I had seen different things, and uh, I'm going to be getting into this in an article, so I don't want to go too deep into it right now, but they had been trying to, since March 17, his entire team, which was about four people, uh, had been actively trying to get me to communicate with them. He wanted to talk to me about cows, 
um, and and we'll talk about cows and, and him his involvement in that and, and his concerns in that because they're slightly different than mine and and yours, uh, but somewhat aligned. But the point was is that I've been kind of close to a lot of these different people in different odd ways, and so I spent a lot of time this week or the last few days since his arrest going back over some of the videos, and it really does seem that his coverage was. It seems that he was part of actually organizing whatever that, for lack of a better phrase, photo op was going to be, and or other footage was like his thing over at the Narrows, which was uh, January 24th. He did this whole little interview with uh, Linda over at the Narrows, and it was like, I think her name is Linda, um, but uh, it was more of a commercial, uh, not just a commercial for the Narrows, which it for sure was that too, but also a commercial for what he was trying to make the public believe was going on. And his ideas of what was going on were different than the ideas on the inside because that was part of his problem is the conflict that the people on the outside, PPN, Idaho 3% him, and others were having with those on the inside and not being able to kind of mesh. Can you talk on that? Because a lot of people, that's like a big question to a lot of people. The How they didn't mesh? <clears throat> well, the Idaho 3% yeah. and PPN came in there. Um, I'm not really sure from everything I've, I've seen and heard, they weren't even invited. You know, it would seem like more uh, like Brandon Curtis just developed a plan one day that, hey, we're going to go there and we're going to inject ourselves into it. Um, it doesn't seem like they were wanted nor welcomed by, by any party there. You know why that would be considering between Pete Santilli and John Ritzheimer and other people that put out videos and live streams from the inside telling people to come, why they would not have been welcomed in? Um, I don't know. I mean, the the way that the, me, my own personal opinion, the way that PPN and the Idaho 3% came in and presented themselves, it was just wrong. You know, I mean, the the first day they got there, you can pull the pictures up of it. You know, these guys come in in full battle rattle. For what? Right. Uh, there again, if, if it's a peaceful protest, why are you in full battle rattle? Um, you know, there were different articles that came out, you know, about militia running around in town, you know, scaring people. Well, you know, some of these guys are running around in full battle rattle all the time. You know, one guy, he was standing, I, I seen him walking around down there, and, you know, he's got his uh, plate carrier on along with a gas mask. And when you're dealing with some small podunk town in, in Oregon, that's not a common sight. That might kind of make people a little nervous. It might. And no offense to anybody uh, in Oregon or in any quote-unquote podunk town, but particularly the people of Harney County who went through all of this <laughs> out there. Um, but, yeah, so, Mark, I, I, I want to give, uh, because it's important what you said, because that really is a true part of the story, and I, I want to give all of the defense attorneys dealing with the co-defenses of the Oregon standoff a little nugget uh, from challenging the rhetoric, and even Mark McConnell, and that is that, and, and, and we can address the things that, that the people on the inside, Ammon and all them did, but the people on the outside, a lot of this intimidation factor that people were feeling on a daily basis was actually coming from those people on the outside. I agree. When you are walking around a town 
um, as you call it, a battle rattle, uh, you know, as you're walking around a town and you're all decked out like that, you simply look scary. I tell you all the time, regardless of what your cause, and not you, Mark, but the listeners, regardless of what their cause and, and stuff is, that most often they're afraid of you and not your message. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about just like the things that they were doing in town, not just the way that they were dressed, but and not that they necessarily did anything bad in town, but just their whole demeanor and how I think that there's an arrogance or something sometimes, and that's very perceived by people that are not accustomed to it. So um, can you talk on that a little bit? Well, I mean, the way that, the way that I seen them in town, you know, and there again, I was only there, you know, a few days while, you know, while they were actually in town, um, you know, the way they did things was just wrong. You know, they were, they were trying to maintain some kind of surveillance for us, you know, as to what the buildup was going on out there at the airport, you know, kind of what the, you know, what was going on at the sheriff station, stuff like that. But, you know, if you want to do stuff like that, you got to be the gray man. You can't go in there, you know, dressed the way they were and acting the way they were. It just, it doesn't work. You know, and I think that that's where a lot of the conflict came in. Right. I'm sorry. I was going to say, when you have someone like Ammon who you didn't really see with a gun all the time or maybe at all for most people on the outside of the refuge or whatever, I mean, his was more like he'd come in in a posse with his big hats and all of that. And that in itself can be intimidating to people. But what they were seeing on the outside was just a more visual uh, kind of sense of aggression. Is that kind of correct when you say that? Yeah, that's a, that's exactly what it is. With Ammon, Ammon presented himself as, you know, someone that was trying to speak and trying to educate the people. You know, um, if you look at, you know, I was up there numerous times with him for press releases and so on and so forth. I've never seen, I've never seen a gun on him up there. Okay, um, you know, he was he was trying to present himself as somebody that, you know, as Ammon is. Ammon's a very if you deal with him in person. He's a, a person you can respect. He's got a lot of charisma. He has a good message, okay? Um, <clears throat> you know, but then these guys come in there, and like I said, you can see the pictures on Google. You know, I mean, these guys come in almost, I mean, almost they, they almost look like Blackwater-type guys in, in Baghdad. And it's Kind of like the American not people work. that they're freaking out. I mean, I'm Correct. sorry, but they look like they look like the guys that they're they're freaking out, calling you know French mercenaries and all this other stuff, right? I mean, right. it's kind of the shoes on both feet there, and but they don't ever seem to want to acknowledge <laughs> their half of all of that 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 coin. Um, so I right. wanted to was, talk a little was, bit with you. Go ahead. I was gonna say that was you know that's where the the the. You know, to me, the you know, to me, where the conflict was, because Ammon was always dressed the same way. You know, he he has that, you know, that rancher country look, you know, but that's who he is. Um, you know, with him, his his, I guess, for lack of a better word, his weapon was his microphone. You know, that was his that was his way of getting his message out there. You know, and then, like I said, these guys come in, dressed the way they were, and you know, running around the way they were. There's just a massive conflict right there. So pointing out about, you know, um, and, you know, his, his, whole, his whole style of who he is and how he presents himself. And then, um, and I hate to always be picking on John Ritzheimer, but he was so <laughs> prolific in advertising himself. It's, it's, you know, the low-hanging fruit. 
But when you when you when you match up Ammon's demeanor and how he presented himself, and as you said, that's how he is. That's how he always is. Is it safe to say that a lot of what we've seen of John Ritzheimer, not saying that there's not some good things about him or whatever, but his whole demeanor and his amped up style and wanting to be the tough guy is also his demeanor? I don't really think John really tries to be the tough guy. John's just intense. You know, John's got passion. When 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 John's on a streak, he puts all into it. There is no, you know, with John, there is no half-assing it at all. He's all in. Um, you know, and and yeah, there is there is you know slight difference there between say like with John and with Ammon because Ammon's more country. You know, Ammon's laid back. He's you know. Um, he's not really as what people would see as excited as what John is, but John's really not excited. John's just there again. He he's all in. Whatever John does, right. anything I've ever seen John do, John is all in. You know, kind of more like the tortoise and the hare. You know, John's right. kind of the hare. I mean, he's off the you know off the line. Here he is. You know, and that's one of the things that you know I do admire about John is there's no back down there's no backing down in him. If he believes it, if it's in his heart, he's on it. You know, and in the same token, Ammon, um, very well spoken, getting his message out there. You know, but Ammon's more like long duration, you know, uh type thinking. True, true. Um and I do want to point this out to the listeners because I talk about cults and cult leaders and cult followers all the time and there is definite cultish aspects to a whole lot of what has happened with regards to the Bundys and their standoffs over the, the years. Uh, I'm not saying all of them are part of a cult or any or all of them are cult leaders, but I will point out to the listeners that Amin Bundy, this charisma, this soft-spoken way, this message on point, blah, 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 and then surrounding himself with you know his little army and then his followers, that's the epitome of a cult leader. Um, there are, you know, other examples of what could be considered a cult leader, and Pete Santilli would fall into that role as well, uh, or into that label by almost all points on the checklist, uh, you know, for other reasons. Um, so, Mark, I want to. We talked a little bit last uh, last week about Ryan Payne and uh, mm-hmm. Brian Cavalier, or Buddha, as a lot of people called him, or what was it, the fluffy penguin, or some, or not penguin, unicorn, or some shit like that. Anyways, um, yeah, you know, I. You, you, you don't have to name any other names or anything like that. I'm going to talk about Jason Blomgren in conjunction to these two, to, to Payne and, uh, and Buddha, but um, there was something different about them, uh, and I think that that was perceived by almost everybody that had any kind of engagement or uh, interaction or even awareness uh, from the peripherals via social media or whatever or regular media uh, about them. And, I, I think because I'm always trying to point out the different kind of factions almost within it because there's all different ideologies going on there uh, as well. And I think it's really important to, to separate the wheat from the chaff as far as uh, who, like, comes across with other agendas or, or you know, mm-hmm. certain things would set them off in the, in, in the other, in, you know, in other directions like, when I talk about John Ritzheimer and when you're talking about qualities that you admire in him, in the same token, it's nice to have somebody passionate that's going to step up to the plate and do it. But at the same time, you also want to be able to manage them so that they're doing the right things in the right order. Uh, because if not, then it can be more of a detriment. And I think that there are some people there, uh, like Payne and Buddha and Jason Blomgren, who um, 
I don't think that their intentions were quite maybe as pure as Ammon Bundy's. Can you talk on that at all? I don't, you know, Ryan Payne's intentions were nowhere near what Ammon's were. Ammon's, Ammon was trying to get a message out there, you know, as he's put out numerous times, you know, they were trying to educate the people. Um, <clears throat> you know, that is what I've seen with Ammon. Ryan, on the other hand, Ryan wants this full bore revolution. You know, that's that's his goal. Um, now, like Jason Patrick, Jason Patrick, you know, he's he's kind of like split in the middle between the two. You know, Jason wants like to talk. Politician. Yeah, he wants to be more like a politician. But where Jason's problem is, is Jason's rhetoric comes in there. You know, as we've said in the show before, you know, Jason's the one that stood be- stood in front of all these guys. And to try to boost the morale, you know, I mean, he stood there, put his hands on his hip, on his hips, you know, that he was, you know, he'd stare down tanks for his constitution. You know, even if he had to stand there alone. And then he turned around and walked himself six miles in 20 degree weather, in 20 degree weather to surrender his ass. You kind of got a conflict there, you know. Um, it was, you know, that was the same thing that Payne did. Payne had a lot of, you know, uh, a lot of rhetoric, but in the end, threw his gun in the snowbank and jumped out of the window of a truck. He didn't open the door. He just he just jumped out the window. You know. Much different, much different uh, personnel, you know, much different trains than um, than with Ammon himself. You know, with Ammon, uh, when they popped us there on, or when they pulled us there on 395, there was no, I mean, you know, there was no issues with Ammon. You know, I stood back there, and I, I, I seen them get, take Buddha and Ammon out of my Jeep, um, both of them compliant. You know, there was no fight, there was no nonsense, no nothing, but... Pain jumps out the window, chunks his gun in the snow. <laughs> I'm sorry. Some, somebody just said something in the chat room, and it was the same thing that you said just a couple seconds ago that caught my attention because it's the first time I've heard such a thing. Now, obviously, you were um, – I, I don't know that you were in eyesight. I'm thinking uh, you might have been in eyesight of that. Why are you? I want to clarify. Were you joking or being sarcastic, or did Ryan literally jump out the window? Of the vehicle. Giant Ryan Ryan went out the window of the truck. He didn't open the door. He went out the window. <laughs> Ryan Payne jumped out the window of LaVoy Finnicum's SUV. Are you hearing this, listeners? He did not even open not the door. Not an SUV. It, it, was, it was a pick. Or yeah, yeah a I'm sorry, truck. Pickup, not an yeah. SUV. Yeah, I'm sorry, his pickup truck. Um, you know, so, I mean, he, he jumps out the window. I mean, come on, Ryan Payne jumps out the window. I mean, this guy who has been, you know, mean mugging everybody all along the way, except for a couple, you know, broken smiles. Um, that's interesting information that, the, uh, you know, the people in the chat room are like, huh, huh? <laughs> and I'm sure the listeners yeah. uh, in the archive are going to be doing the same thing. Uh, you know, people are going to question you on this, Mark. <laughs> that, was, that was good. Huh. That was a great little piece of color. Um, can we talk about Jason Blomgren for a minute? Now, uh, I'm going to say some stuff to the listeners that is completely and utterly outside of Mark mm-hmm. and anything that Mark and I have discussed or, uh, or he's going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what I know about Jason Blomgren. 
Um, I've been investigating Jason Blomgren for a couple months now, and I have been dealing with very uh, a handful, um, multiple people that are close uh, to him. Some are related, some are not, and there is a lot of stuff in Blomgren's family. Uh, I think I told the listeners several weeks ago that Jason Blomgren's father is a former NYPD uh, cop, and I believe that he also had some involvement at some point in his career uh, with the FBI. Blongren was basically a gangbanger in New York, and his daddy got him out of a whole lot of trouble. A whole lot of trouble, and then the stuff that he wasn't able to get him out of is well on the record out there for anyone that wants to search. Um, Jason Blongren, uh, it is my understanding from multiple sources, uh, and I cannot say this to be true, uh, but it is multiple and different sources, including sources that do not even speak to one another. <laughs> uh, they hate each other. But I'm hearing a lot of the same story, and that was that Jason Blomgren had, in fact, had a, a full cache of weapons that was not just guns uh, in North Carolina before he went to Oregon. Now, the story is, is that he went to Oregon without any weapons and later acquired first borrowing one and then acquiring his own once he arrived in Oregon. But I've heard a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff about that. Is there anything that you can add to what I just said with regards to Jason Blomgren, Mark? Well, you know, I've heard those same things, that, that what Jason left North Carolina with isn't what he arrived in Oregon with. Um, Jason Jason was, in a lot of ways, I don't want to say Payne's right-hand man, but he was pretty close to being. You know, um, Blomgren, he, he followed Payne around. You know, Blomgren would be with Payne, then he'd be over in HQ. Um, he bounced around a lot. You know, if we were doing, like, when uh, – uh, I can't remember the guy's, uh, Adrian Sewell, you know, when we were doing his press mm-hmm. release up there where, you know, he ripped up his contract, um, Blomgren was down there. You know, they moved some of the guys down there for, for additional security. You know, now it's under my impression as well that Blomgren went to John Day the day of the 25th to help set up for that meeting up there, which never really made much sense to me because that was just a um, – I mean, it's not, it's not really hard to set up for those meetings. We were bringing everything with us. We had the projector. Uh, we had all that stuff with us. So I really don't know what he was up there setting up. But for some reason, it was it was deemed you know necessary for him to go up there the day before we were arrested to set up. Okay. Um, I have to jump back real quick to Ryan Payne jumping out of the window. <laughs> There's people in the chat room that want to know. Did he go out head first or feet first? <laughs> yes, <exactly laughs> that I really don't know. For all of us, Mark. <laughs> you know, Ryan. Ryan's kind of acrobatic, so I mean, he may have went out head first and went to his hands. I don't know. I mean, I know like that when we were on the those... ground. Go ahead. Excuse me. I was going to say he seems you know, like he were... be one of those parkour guys. Yeah, probably. I mean, when we were on the ground, you know, and they try to move us when we're handcuffed, and they try to move us from our butt to stand on our feet. Um, Ryan, I mean, he could, he just sprung right up from, from his butt, right to his knees, right to his feet. No big deal. Me, I'm six, four. It didn't work that way. You know, they had to actually help me up cause my legs are too long and try to swing underneath me. You know, so if I had to, if I had to, you know, bat and from what, you know, I've kind of pieced together because you can kind of partially piece it together with the aerial footage. No, it looks like he went out of the, out of the truck head first. Hmm. That's funny. I know that he. Um, okay. I know that for a glimpse, he was actually underneath the truck. So I think that he probably went out head first, and maybe well, was right there by the edge of the truck before they got him. Ah, uh, gotcha. So uh, back to what you were saying with regards to um, 
Blomgren uh, and, and the meeting before uh, the day of the 26th, the meeting and John Dave Blomgren went to go and do set up or arrange or, or whatever. Um, and did he actually meet with uh, Sheriff Palmer that day? That I don't know. You know. I don't know. I mean, I don't really there again. I don't really know what he was going there to set up for. The building was already built. I mean, all we needed to do was bring, you know, the projector, the the PA system, stuff like that. But we had that with us, so I don't really, did I don't he, really know why he went up there. Did he? Well, I mean, I, I mean, if if I'm going to do an event, um, I'm going to go and I'm going to either go and try to pre-promote and shake hands and get people interested in coming, or I'm going to go mm-hmm. because the venue that's letting me use their space says I have to set up 100 folding chairs myself or something. Um, was there any kind of talk like that as what he needed to go and set up? No, there was never any any real reason why. You know. Did um. There was. Go ahead. No, I, I was done. Um, do you so? Do you remember any kind of actual conversations from Blomgren with regards to any of his time in John Day? No. No, I didn't. I didn't even see him when he came back. Did you? I just. I had overheard Blom- somebody say that he went up there. Did you ever see Jason Blomgren with any weapons there besides like a handgun that he said he borrowed and then acquired his own? Yeah, he had an AR-15. Okay, so um, what the listeners don't know is there's some question about uh, an injunction against Jason Blomgren. There's a Florida injunction against him for a family domestic violence incident, uh, and not not against his wife. Apparently there were some of those, or his ex-wife, some of those kind of problems in the past, but this was another family member, which, by the way, there's a whole lot of different family arrests within this tight family unit, uh, for these same kind of things. This injunction, I am waiting to hear back from the Florida DA, but it does look like this injunction that was against him uh, for attempted strangulation of uh, a family member that he was to never be able to legally own uh, a gun in his life. Uh, the way that the injunction is written is there is like no end date on it as there normally would be. So trying to get clarification on that. So one of the things that's been of interest to me is how did his attorney uh, provide uh, legal paperwork that Jason could have a gun in Oregon, this gun that he said he acquired here? Do you know anything about that, how he got a gun, where he got a gun, anything like that, how did he get the permit or whatever was needed? No, I have no idea. I mean, if he got a permit up there, Oregon, if if I remember right, Oregon concealed care permits go right through a sheriff. But you have to be a legal resident of, of Oregon as well. So I don't know. You know, an out-of-state resident, you know, certain states have, have you know, certain people, depending on what state you live in, you, you can purchase, you know, long guns in other states. Handguns, not necessarily. You know, like when I lived in New York, if I bought a handgun in Arizona or Nevada, it had to be shipped to New York, and then I had to go through the process in New York. So I don't really, I don't know if, if he could go into a store and purchase a handgun up well, yeah, uh, I, I know um, I know that I, if, as long as I, um, you know, I'm good to go, I can walk into my local store and I can buy a gun. Um, but 
I, I think, but th- that's what was odd about the fact that his attorney had provided some actual kind of legal right for him to have this. So I don't know if it was like a concealed carry uh, permit that he provided or what. Um, and so I find that very, very interesting, especially in the event of some kind of legal paperwork like that needs to come from a sheriff. And he had meetings with Sheriff Palmer, who has deputized at least 70 people uh, in his community um, and is one of these quote-unquote constitutional sheriffs who's under investigation now. So um, that's all still a mystery, and we'll keep working on that and talking about that along the way. Um, so let's talk about Buddha and the whole stolen valor thing, Mark. Um, and I know that you weren't there full-time and all of that, but with regards to Buddha, um, you know, isn't he the guy that also stole the donations or whatever and took off to the hotel to drink and, and shit? No, that was um, that was allegedly to be Joe O'Shaughnessy that went to they took the donations and went to the Silver Spur. You know whether that okay, actually was, happened or not. Go ahead. Right. I was gonna say, but but Buddha is the one that had the whole stolen valor thing. So what was the forgiveness factor there for for him to be so close to be Bundy security? What was the forgiveness factor there for such a lie? I mean, stolen dollars. That's that's not cool. Well. I don't know. I don't really know what the dynamic was between Bunda, between Buddha and the Bundys. You know, he seemed to be rather close to them, but they were there again, night and day differences. You know, um, Buddha's stolen valor stuff. You know, it happened and happened in the Bundy Ranch. And I mean, all the guy did was he claimed that he was in the Marines. Um, but he, I mean, he he my dealings with Buddha. You gotta you gotta accept Buddha for who he is. You know, there again, you can't fall a fish for not being able to climb a tree. Um, you know, I don't really understand why, you know, he was as close to him as he was, unless they were, you know, unless they tried to to help him. Um, you know, Buddha would be in Buddha be in security up there. Buddha was unarmed. You know, so I don't know. It, that was just that's another facet that just doesn't really make much sense. How how many of the quote unquote leadership um, th- that uh, I'm sorry, I just got a message for the listeners. Uh, it sounds like Lewis uh, will be calling in uh, at the appropriate time. I was just going to tell the listeners that that may not happen because I know some stuff just went down. Uh, so we're going to play that by ear. Um, Mark, with regards to Buddha, okay, as you have pointed out to the listeners that Jason Blomgren had this attachment and this loyalty to Ryan Payne, where was Buddha on that? Was he more Payne loyal or more Ammon Bundy loyal? Or was he on both oh, sides he, of the fence, kind of like like Jason Patrick? No, uh, Buddha was definitely more loyal with the Bundys. Um, he actually, you know, he he does look up them. He does respect them. Um, you know, he there's there's a dynamic that they have there. You know, um, Buddha, as far as pain went, there was a serious distrust there. You know, and from what from what I figured out, it was something that happened at the ranch. I don't know what happened there. I wasn't there. Um, but whatever happened at the ranch or after the ranch created a rift there. They were social with each other. Um, there was more like a mutual understanding between the two. But I don't think either one was going to invite the other one over for dinner. So after the night of the seventh, um, uh, when you know uh, twenty or so people or whatever left the left the refuge and it was down to what like 10 under a dozen about 10 of the people that were left at the refuge uh the leadership and then that second tier or whatever 
What percentage of them, from your perspective and dealings, especially right at that time, would you say were uh, more loyal to Bundy versus more loyal to Payne? Because it seems to me like there is kind of two courts there, in a sense. Well, I mean, with those people there, with the you know, with the people that were left over after that, I don't think that. I think their loyalties more lied with the mission. You know, I talked to you know I talked to numerous people up there after that, and you know the the overwhelming uh, message I kept getting back was they were where their heart told them they, they needed to be. You know, which <clears throat> if I have to interpret that, I'm going to say that their their loyalties would would lie more with with Ammon because that was his mission, which. I think was more of a mission of cows, but that's me. Well, that's that's actually a great segue because that's where we're going now. So let's get back into cows. Um, we know that Ritzheimer made comments about all the stuff, the you know, going on in the background that everybody doesn't know. We know that even Ryan Payne said that directly to Sheriff Ward and seemed to be very serious about what he was saying. I mean, that's that's the general consensus to everybody I spoke to that's heard that language from them. They took it very serious that they had these powerful political people that were going to fix it all uh, in the background. So with that in mind, you know, do you believe that that Ryan Payne believed that as much as he said that, like to say it to Sheriff Ward? Do you think he believed that as much as, say, Ammon Bundy did? I do. I think that Payne... I think that that motivated pain. You know, there again, pain is uh, anybody that deals with pain or knows pain um, knows that that pain's quite the revolutionary. You know, and I think that that right there gave him. Uh, I think that that kind of a backing gave him more momentum, more push. So when they when they're talking about the mission, the people that are there left for the mission, obviously the cows have some part of this mission, and that mi- mission from the the public perspective, outside looking in, and even from people that were there, if not necessarily in the refuge, and uh, but on the outskirts, um, it seemed like the Hammond's name kind of got dropped suddenly, and it wasn't so much being talked about, which made it seem more like an opportune thing that. Um, you know, they were going to use that as their opportunity uh, to do whatever. But one of the things when we're when we're talking about Adam Bundy and the charisma and it's all about the message and he wants to just educate the people and, you know, it's, he's got his good cause and all of that. When, at what point, Mark, does it matter if they're wrong, if they're fundamentally actually wrong, legally actually wrong in their cause, what they think are facts, what – when you know when when is there when when is it for instance many things that the that the Bundy family have said over the years just like the whole Harry Reid thing and and other things but many of those things are inaccurate I mean they use a Jefferson quote that's a fake quote it's been proven fake quote for you know a long time but they still will argue it and use it and all of that. So when you have somebody that comes off like he's just nice and soft-spoken and charismatic and wants to help and educate all these people, if his cause and his message is fundamentally wrong, when does all that nice exterior say, well, fuck that shit? Well, see, that's where that's where my conflict came in. Because, you know, as I've told people, you know, I did support, I did support the message he was trying to get out there. I do believe that um, – you know, the federal government does have too much power. I do believe that we do need to, you know, start limiting 
what the federal government can and cannot do and get it back to the way it should be. But in the same token, that's why the night that the refuge was taken, I commented on Facebook that it was like a bunch of six-year-olds having a temper tantrum. You know, the message, it was, you know, the message was good. The problem is as soon as they took that refuge, it was done. You know, that was, that was a, a bad step from my perspective. Um, you know, then it started to look like, okay, maybe it'll, maybe it'll turn because Greg Weldon took, you know, took it to the house floor. So, okay, so maybe some good's going to come out of that. And that's why, you know, with the vote on the seventh, that's why we pushed to get out of there because it was, it was, it was FUBAR to begin with. Um, but then we started to gain a little bit of traction with Greg Weldon taking it to the house floor and going, okay, you know, thanks for bringing this to us. We'll take it from here. And that's where we should have went, but that's not what happened. You know, instead it was, you know, no, we're going to hold the refuge. I mean, they had plans all the way out for, you know, spring and summer for what they were going to do with the refuge. And I mean, sitting there listening to, you know, people talk about plans for what they're going to do with spring and summer. I mean, anybody with a rational mind is going to sit there and go, you're not even going to make it to February 1st. The federal government's not just going to sit there and go, all right, you took the bird refuge. Oh, shucks, you can keep it. It's not going to happen that way. Just like it's not, you know, like we, like we talked about last week in your show, you know, there's a mindset that somebody in Washington is going to wake up and go, wow, we've been reading this document for 200 years incorrectly. Thanks for bringing this to our attention. You know, so, I mean, the, the, message, the message is good. You know, I do, I do agree with the message, and I do applaud the, mess, applaud the message. It was the application of it that was just horrendous. So I, I want to say to the listeners and, and, you know, for you as well, Mark, um, that, and I've said this before, especially in the early coverage that I did of the standoff when everything was still going on down there, um, there are parts of this that I, I understand from the ranchers' perspective, the ranchers, farmers, you know, loggers, miners, and all that, when it actually comes to the very real normal livelihood. Um, I totally disagree, however, on some of the things that they claim to be facts, constitutional facts, when there's other articles in the Constitution that uh, completely unravel the things that they want to pull out as their talking points, and and, and people aren't going to sit there and read the whole thing in its entirety. And, and the truth is, is when people point out certain things to you, regardless of what the topic is, and they harp on certain things, you pretty much start skimming the rest because you already start forming this bias one way or the other. And so, you know, for me, for my listeners, uh, I'm still on the record. I completely, absolutely disagree with what they did down there. I, and I say that not just as a journalist. I say that as somebody who's been an in-the-streets activist who's, who's traveled uh, all over the place to uh, do activist stuff, uh, I've, uh, as well as going, you know, to lobby Congress and stuff like that. So, um that being said, those commonalities that, like you and you and I, Mark, right now, are able to agree on, where they do have some valid points uh, on certain things, and 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 like maybe Melvin and I agreed on, and things we didn't agree, and maybe Lewis and I will agree on, and stuff like that. That's part of this equation is that we don't all need to agree, and we're never all going to agree on the same thing. But we can have civil and productive 
dialogues out of that disagreement, so long as it's a dialogue and not a debate, because it's the debate that always stops anything from ever happening. A debate is just an ongoing banter, back and forth, back and forth, opinion, 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 until everybody's worn out, and then somebody inevitably is just a loser. And then nobody wins in that sense, uh, you know, as a nation. That isn't really how it works. Um, we don't have much more time with you because uh, you were only here with, for you know to, to hang for the first hour. So um, I wanted to talk about this woman Barbara Burke uh, that had basically kind of snuck onto the refuge when it was mm. the final floor there. And um, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about her. I know that you had uh, had some sort of interaction with her at some point, either before, or during, or after. But um, what do you know about Barbara Burke? She's still uh, kind of a, a question for me. I know very, very little about her. Um, I know that she was a, I believe she's a union employee, and she works somewhere in the mines. You know, I know that, I've seen somewhere that she's got experience with, with hazardous materials and stuff. Um, my interaction with Barbara, I believe I've seen her up there a few times in the chow hall. <clears throat> you know, my, my main interaction with, with Barbara was the morning of the 28th um, when Jake Ryan was going to, when Jake Ryan came out, I'm the one that went, actually went up to the roadblock to retrieve him. My personal effects were still in the, were still at the refuge. You know, my sleeping system uh, in my duffel bag uh, were still at the refuge. So Barbara actually went into HQ, got them out, brought them down with Jake Ryan to the roadblock for me. And then after that, from what I'm understanding, she was, you know, shuffling, you know, shuffling back and forth between the refuge and the roadblock or the refuge and the narrows. Yeah, she, she bragged uh, to the media that mm. she had actually had mm. snuck into the refuge when the final four were there and, and shared a beer with them. And then at some point, it's alleged that she was actually the FBI uh, had started allowing her to interact and help negotiate with them. I don't know how much of that is actually true, but it was widely reported on. Um, but my my thing with Barbara is she to the media uh, in all the media reports, whether it was alternative or otherwise, um, she basically had kind of publicly not not and and her social media is a whole other matter because that's what I want to talk about. But publicly, particularly to the main media, she put it off like she had heard about this going on and she just wanted to go and see as somebody concerned and, you know, da 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 da. But when you look at her social media and you look at her history and her backstory and who she is as a person, she's definitely one of the supporters of not just the message but the cause of the people. And so the, her motivations for going out there the two times she went out there were, were not just what she publicly was claiming. Now, she posted on Facebook, and I don't have the exact date of that post because uh, I didn't pull it up in front of me before the show. I, I meant to. Um, but I can share that with the listeners. Uh, I have the archive of that. She made a post, and she had taken a picture uh, inside the firehouse at the refuge of a box of um, explosives and or explosive materials and, uh, and had put that out there. And mm. her, her spin was that she was – posting this out there because she wanted to make sure that the guys at the refuge, the people at the refuge, weren't blamed for bringing it in or um, its use if it happened. Now, we know that Ammon, in a, a press conference, uh, and I think that might have been, I don't think it was the, the one where you drove Ammon Bundy to the Sheriff Ward press conference where they had their big handshake, correct? Yeah, I did. 
Right, because uh, I think we talked about that last week. Um, but he had another uh, meeting on a different day with the FBI, uh, which was uh, also broadcast. And um, he told them that they had found some explosive materials, I think was the phrasing that he used. And, and he kind of, you know, laughed and said, well, we're not going to use them or whatever. Um, so I don't know if, if, if it's one and the same. The, uh, the, the timing of that is different because... Um, you know, I, I, I need to go and check again when she actually posted that picture. Um, but the thing is, is that there was this missing backpack. Now, the most that we hear about this missing backpack uh, out there has really come from people like Maureen Peltier, Staff Sergeant Moe, and Cowboy and the Lady, and, and a lot of these Patriot um, Facebook pages and other social media and groups that are, you know, they seem to think that there's this missing back, backpack that the feds are looking for because it contains documents uh, on the BLM or the land itself that's going to, you know, prove their whole case or the Bundy's whole case. Um, and they, it's, it's kind of funny when they start posting about it because it just is, it's, it, and they use all caps and, and all that. And, I, you know, it's, it's funny on the receiving end of, like, looking at this and, like, what the hell are you talking about? Because there was some actual, and I, and I think it was in a press conference, in one of the official press conferences, and I can't remember if it was, while there were still people at the refuge, like the final four, if it was immediately after, but there was some talk briefly somewhere that there was a missing backpack that was believed to potentially con contain some sort of explosives in it. And so, um, you know, South Sergeant Moe just recently, uh, not, not too long ago, sometime in the last couple, three weeks or so, maybe even sooner than that, uh, had, and then all the rest of them, you know, had been posting and posting about, oh, no, they're going back, but, you know, there's officials going back looking for the backpack again. Well, now we have Michael Emery arrested, and they find explosives underneath his bed. And so I wouldn't have uh, immediately thought this, but again, Staff Sergeant Moore, Mo, Maureen Peltier, she's got to put her spin out there, whether she knows what she's talking about or not. She just wants to get it out there quick. And that's when she starts talking about this backpack again and alluding that did he have the backpack. Of course, not talking about explosives, though, but talking about whatever paperwork she and they deemed to be in it. Mm. Did you ever hear anything about a backpack with explosives? Nothing with a backpack as far as explosives. Um, I think the, the explosives that Ammon was talking about, we did find there was a, a large uh, white steel box, which there is pictures of it, that was found out there, which is typically what dynamite is stored in. I think that that's what they're talking about with that. The uh, the Flash 21A21B that Barbara took a picture of, that was on March 12th. Uh, I just had to go back and look. Uh, that was on March 12th, and that, that, that stemmed from uh, James Sparks sending all that stuff to Maureen Peltier. And Maureen kind of, Maureen put it, you know, on her, on her actual Facebook page um, so that if, if anybody's seen it, you know, they would know that she wasn't trying to backhand something. Uh, Flash 21A21B, if I don't personally think that Ammon would have known what it is, because that's something that is used for controlled burns. I mean, that's professional grade stuff. You know, as far as that being used for explosives, it's very easy to use for explosives. Anybody can Google it. If you mix it with diesel or gas, you can make a hell of an explosive or IED. Um, so I don't really think that that's what they were talking about. But yeah, there there was flash 21A, 21B up there. There also was potassium permanganate up there. Which potassium permanganate is also way? used for? Well, potassium permanganate, if you mix it, it it's done in like little ping pong ball um, 
basically, and they fire it out to base to try to intensify a burn in a certain area. You know, but I don't really think that that's the explosives that Ammon was talking about. I think he was talking about that big steel dynamite box that was found up there. Okay. Um, I'm being but, like told I said, Barbara. By, uh... I'm sorry, Mark, let me tell you real quick. I'm being told, because um, you and I are nearing, like, where I'm getting ready to shoot you off and bring Lewis on. Uh, but Melvin Lee has sent me a message, and he asked me to keep you on the line just a little bit longer. Uh, Lewis will be here. Um, but uh, So if you do need to go in the next couple minutes, that's fine. I can go ahead and continue until Lewis is on. But I would like it if you can at least, if, if you'd like to stay, please do. Um, but go ahead. Please continue about the, the and I'm going to say it wrong, but the potassium, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> the potassium permanganate? Um, yes. <laughs> potassium permanganate, there again, it's used for it. They put it in ping pong balls, and you can typically see it like when they're doing wildfires. <clears throat> you can typically see where they fire those little ping pong balls out into the fire. That's what they're doing. They're intensifying and basically building a wall of fire to try to control the fire. But, <clears throat> yeah, the Flash 21A, 21B, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, with what was actually there at the refuge, what, what what kind of damage could have been done should they wanted to have used that stuff that was there already, not counting if anybody brought anything else in? Just with them, just with the flash 21A, 21B, I mean, it would be horrendous. If you mix it with something, say, like with diesel, uh, flash 21A becomes more or less liquid napalm. Once it's, once it's ignited, it's inextinguished by, by water, if I remember right. If you mix it with gas, it's volatile. You know, um, <clears throat> that's not something your common people would know. You know, people with, with certain military backgrounds or certain jobs, you know, in the civilian sector, you know, kind of like with Barbara, you know, she deals with hazard materials for, for mining. So she would know what that stuff is. You know, now if you have um, certain backgrounds with the military, say like, you know, SEAL teams, recon, um, rangers, even like Army LERPs, would typically know how to make stuff with that. Um, there, I just uh, saw a comment on Twitter, uh, which is slightly, well, it is off the topic that we're talking on right now, but I think it's worth addressing, if you don't mind. Um, there are several people that had uh, tweeted and, and retweeted today wanting to know um, what kind of border work have you done? Uh, you know, Melvin had talked more on that when he was here, but the question is, is what, what kind of have you done? And... I, I want to put this the right way. Uh, I'm not trying to frame the question, but I want to put it in the right way so that you understand the question that's coming at me is some people have a, a huge lack of respect for that because of so many of the media stories that have come out about that. So can, can you talk on that a little bit, Mark? Our border stuff, we are we, we act as uh, – I don't really want to say I was a force multiplier, but we act in cahoots with Border Patrol. We are Border Patrol is undermanned, understaffed. We, you know, everybody knows that. We go out there and act more as eyes and ears for them because those guys are spread so thin that we go out there and we help them. Now, our involvement on the border, I want to make it really, really clear, crystal clear. Our guys on the border. We are not down there to snipe illegals. We are not down there to steal drugs. We are not down there to steal money. Anything like that that is found is turned over to Border Patrol along with pictures being taken. If you go to, web, if you go to Facebook pages like Arizona Border Recon, 
Um, the guy that runs that, his dog just found 60 pounds of marijuana. It's pictured. It's handed over to Border Patrol. Our border operations, contrary to what the media wants to portray us as, we're not a bunch of vigilantes down there. Okay, we do not – you cannot go hands-on with somebody unless it's in accordance with the law. Okay, if it's a self-defense issue, that's fine. But you cannot just chase down illegals. You cannot just – you know, you cannot cuff them. You cannot – you can't even body check them. That's not what we do. You know, um, you know, bring in – you know, kind of, it's kind of like with the FBI informant nonsense, Okay. You know, people have talked for years about going down there, and they're like, well, are you guys worried about an FBI informant coming with you? No, we're not. You know, I, I laugh about it. Numerous, you know, numerous guys, you know, we just kind of chuckle at the thought because, there again, we don't do anything illegal. We sit on hilltops. Um, we do have some of us, some of the groups do have, you know, do have means to get a hold of Border Patrol quick. You know, like we, with us and with the radios we run, we can get a hold of Border Patrol really quick. Um, but what's that report going to be on Monday or, or whenever it is they go back to the office? Well, I dressed in camouflage. I sat on a hill with a pair of binoculars or night vision, uh, ate some MREs, seen some Mexicans called Border Patrol. It's a pretty boring anticlimactic report. You know, so we never worried about it. You know, because with our border operations, like I said, it's more of a humanitarian. You know, I, I don't know how many I'd have to actually contact AZBR to find out, you know, find out, you know, to to see exactly how many uh, illegals have actually been helped down there. You know, we run into illegals, they're dehydrated, uh, they're malnourished. I mean, the desert is brutal, especially in the summertime. They're all turned over to Border Patrol. There's no harm at all done to these people. And there's been a lot of lives that have been saved down there because of, of various civilian groups. Are there some civilian groups that are, that are shady? Certainly. Those ones there, we, for the most part, we isolate them. We blacklist them. We know who they are. We keep eyes on them. You know, we don't let them into, we don't, we go to, we do the best we can not to allow any of those kind of guys in our ranks. You know, with AZBR, um, there's background checks you have to go through. You know, so there is a lot of there is a lot of protocol. There is a lot of standards. You know, like I said, with the media, the media does spin it. You know, I just seen an article the other day about uh, the three percent United Patriots. You know, and calling them vigilantes. No, they're not. I know a bunch of those guys. You know, a bunch of those guys. I mean, I got a bunch of those guys even on my Facebook page. They're 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 a good group. They're a good bunch of guys, and they're down there, and all they're doing is trying to fill gaps and fill holes. The border patrol can't be in all the time. I, I'm glad that you um, acknowledge that there are people out there that say they're doing what what you and Melvin and others are doing uh, that are are doing bad things. Oh, and some of those are intentionally, and some are just stupidity, <laughs> and uh, probably more are intentional. <laughs> um, but you know, but it's it's. Well, it was important for me to interject. Oh, hold on a second. It was important for me to interject that that question from Twitter um, because it is important for me, for my listeners, because they are so diverse, to understand that I, I suppose this is kind of like peeling an onion in the sense that there are so many layers to things and that we cannot put these blanket feelings and statements out 
on everything that we hear, these sound bites. Oh, it's a border patrol. Oh, we got to hate him. Oh, it's a patriot. Oh, we got to hate him. Oh, my God, here comes a flag with an eagle. That's bad now. It doesn't need to be that way because it really comes down to understanding. And, and, I, and, and your reputation work uh, is important to me uh, in the sense that I wanted to give you an opportunity to address that because it kind of came at me in a negative fashion on Twitter right now. But I would like to, before we bring Lewis on, who is in the queue, by the way, listeners, Lewis is here. Uh, but could you go ahead? I'm going to go ahead and... Um, I want, to, I want to bounce it right back to you because I do want to get back into what you were talking about with explosives and stuff. And I'm sorry to cut you off, but, your, again, your reputation on that issue was very important for me to give you an opportunity to speak on it. And I appreciate that. I truly do. Thank because you. we, as border, border groups, we get a very bad rap merely because we, we have guns and we, we are camouflaged on. Well, of course we have guns. Cartels, they don't, they don't, like play, they don't play around. You know? They run around no, with guns. They, they have no ROEs, which is, you know, they have no rules of engagement. But there again, there's, there are far more reputable groups. I mean, probably I would say probably on a 10 to 1 ratio of reputable good groups that are down there versus guys that are, <clears throat> you know, bad intentions or just plain screw-ups that are down there. Are we armed? Sure, we're armed. Cartels are down there. But reputable groups maintain a stance that we stay within accordance of the law. If it's a self-defense issue, that's one thing. But I have yet to hear of a reputable group that has shot somebody or something down there. It's never happened. Now, if you listen to the media, it's a different story. So I do appreciate you giving me the time to explain that. Well, it just just seemed very important. Like I said, that um, uh, people have... um, mellowed out towards you a little bit with regards to those listening to the show and, and engaging. Uh, and so I know that I'm doing a good job at trying to help people understand uh, from all sides, all the different things. And I didn't want this negativity to sit there so close to you leaving the show tonight and then be unanswered because that was important enough to make sure I was fair on that uh, to, to not only those asking, but to, to you as well. Um, but Again, before I bring Lewis on, and and I don't remember the exact point where we left off, and I apologize, but can we get back a little bit into those explosives that were there and, um, you know, the backpack and the blah, 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 you know, as far as all of that at the refuge? Okay, well, what do you want to know? The backpack, like I said, I've heard about about a backpack, but I've never seen it. And you never heard necessarily what was in the backpack? No. No. I've heard numerous things, but the bottom line is it was a backpack that was zipped up, so people are going to run with whatever it is their narrative wants them to be. It could either be incriminating evidence. I mean, hell, it could be Jimmy Hoffa. Right. Right. So, so the listeners, there, there are many people uh, that have um, provided me evidence of some sort, and I mean uh, at least via images, um, <clears throat> of some sort of, excuse me, uh, explosives that were at the refuge. We have Alan Bundy talking about that on a press conference of his own that that they found explosives there. Um, so Mark explained some of the uh, explosives that were known uh, in that and explained what they would generally be for. And those of you out there that want to kind of research those particular types of explosives and see why they would make sense for a fish and wildlife center type, you know, uh, refuge place, uh, whether BLM or not, would would have those. And I think that you'll find that what Mark said 
uh, is pretty legit. Now, that being said, I do want to say, jumping real quickly back to the Jason Blomgren topic and the arsenal that I know that he had before he left North Carolina and bits and pieces that I've heard uh, with regards to his arrival in Oregon. And there does seem to be some sort of discrepancy that Jason Blomgren had left specifically has allegedly left with some specific things, North Carolina that also allegedly never actually made it or arrived at the refuge itself. Do you know anything about that at all, Mark? Because I haven't actually asked you that. Um, no, I mean, like I said, I've heard, I've heard where he left, you know, what he left uh, North Carolina with isn't what he showed up in Oregon with. You know, but there again, once he got to Oregon, he says that he showed up there with no weapons, but he acquired a weapon. I mean, there, there's a, there, it just doesn't make sense. He acquired a weapon, and, you know, like with you point out, it's been shown where he wasn't even typically, you know, legally a possessor of weapons. Yet he showed up in Oregon with no weapon, acquired a weapon, and then acquired a concealed care permit. You know, and by so, context, um, you know, you know, to give you to give you kind of an example, uh, to get a you know to get a concealed care permit in Oregon, it, it 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 takes some time, and like I said, it comes from the sheriff. So I don't really know how he got it. There's a I would say there's a lot of questions there. Yeah, especially if uh, you know he seemed to have more involvement with Sheriff Palmer than um, most of the people at the refuge, as far as more interactions with him. Uh, because of the setup and the meetings and stuff for the uh, whole John Day thing that never happened. Um, Mark, thank you so very much for coming on again. Uh, I, I know that you had said that you probably couldn't stick around, so, I mean, if you want to stick around, you're more than welcome to, but I do want to go ahead and bring Lewis on. He's been waiting in the queue, and I know he's had a very, very busy day himself. Um, so I really appreciate yeah. your input. And, uh, you know, as you know, uh, we're not done with this story, and, and I definitely want to have you coming back again soon. Okay. Well, I appreciate it. Anytime you want me back on, just let me know, um, and I'll be here. Well, we'll do that. We'll work that out off air. Thanks again. I appreciate you. Okay, so now I am uh, going to bring on Lewis Arthur. And Lewis Arthur is known to a lot of people as Louis Prepper. Uh, he has veterans on patrol. You know, uh, I, I, I might say the stats wrong because I'm not even looking at my notes, but uh, I, I believe that there are a lot of lives lost. I'm not even going to say the numbers. There are a lot of veterans' lives lost by suicide and other means uh, on a daily and a weekly basis. And, and uh, it's something that we should be aware of. Uh, and, it, and, and, and for the listeners that are completely anti-war of mine, people who have followed me for years, I know that there's uh, the majority portion of you that always still support the troops, even if um, we don't support why or what war or whatever, for whatever reason. And I say we because I have questions on some of the wars uh, that, that were there, and my listeners know this. Uh, one of the reasons I want to bring Louie on, and I, I'm going um, to cue him up, so he is going to be live, but I, I'm not going to fully intro him yet. Uh, so, Louie, don't say anything, or Louis, don't say anything when you're <laughs> yet. But one of the things that was really important to me about bringing Louis on tonight is that most people – uh, including including myself, most people have uh, this picture of militia and these patriots, and uh, and I'm not trying to insult anybody, but you know the common term out there that that has just really become really rampant is right wing nut jobs, and um, where there's a whole lot of those, and they're including a, you know a couple of Twitter people that use those very handles, uh, and they are right wing nut jobs. 
but there are those we're talking those extreme edges but what most people don't understand is that people that get involved with uh, you know border recons and and militias they're not all conservatives and right-wingers um, and if I could present to you somebody that's maybe more on the other side of that if there really is another side in the sense it's going to be Lewis Arthur because he would be more the liberal bent although I don't want to label him a liberal but when we get to talking here you will see kind of the both worlds of that and it might make more sense to you when I talk about how I'm an independent and how I'm an issue-based voter I'm a, I, everything with me is about the particular issues not the politicians not the political parties not all of that stuff I don't care what race somebody is I don't care who you want to make love to I don't I, you know, I don't care about that. What I care about is the things that truly do fundamentally matter as far as how we make and, and, and adhere to and break the laws of this country because we have to participate in that. So, um, Lewis Arthur, thank you so, so much for joining me on the show. I know you had a busy day and you've got to be exhausted, but uh, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, sir. I appreciate you. Um, so I shared the video that you put out this morning uh, that you were going off on this mission today. And so if you don't mind, can we kind of start with that and you can explain, because I know a lot of people listening tonight did, in fact, watch that video, and they they really dug what your mission was and what you were doing. Um, well, we extracted two more out of Prescott. When I say extract, we go and find our homeless that um, aren't in a safe place, and we bring them to a safe place where we provide 24-7 free care. Um, none of us make money. We don't accept money. Uh, we shelter them. We uh, minister to them. We help them through their addictions. We accept them the way they are. And, uh, you know, we have rogue groups, mainly militias, that, you know, and this is a problem that my family's ministry has with militias. There's a lot of good, um, good members out there. But there's also a lot of bad ones, and this is the third base hijacking where someone is taking something my wife and I in the community built. Um, we just got done leaving Delta Base. Uh, Sierra Vista PD was awesome, outstanding, had our back like they always do. Uh, the guys who stole everything tried to have us trespassed. Uh, we had to go through civil court to uh, deal with this because we're an SSO and we don't have a tax status. Um, but the property owner is going to hold on to our remaining military structures. Now, uh, we do know that um, Lorraine Campos and Dennis Beck and John Hildinger and Colby Robbins have confiscated three of our GP small mediums for the militia, so we're going to have to try to acquire those back from these groups, which isn't an easy thing to do. But um, all in all, we're going to be headed back to Tucson soon. And I'm pleased with the outcome. It's always great to have, you know, the police and the community stand by our side and the property owners stand against the people that were stealing from us. That was uh, um, when you're talking about extracting people um, and stuff like that. Can you, um, you know, that was your mission today. Can you talk about how, how, things lead into what you did today, like what you do on a, on a daily basis? Because let me preface that question. There's some people out there who may not be very familiar out there. I, of course, you know, there's a lot of controversy about you, just like there is Mark and, you know, this, uh, you've been labeled the Fed and blah, blah, blah over different reasons. And, and uh, we're going to talk about your experience at Bundy Ranch as well as at Melier. But 
one of the things that struck me today is I saw a couple people kind of picking you apart for what you do with regards to homeless vets and the parks and stuff like that. And they kind of was like, well, I guess it's not bad, but it's kind of extreme anyway, and, and, and so on and so forth. So can you explain what your what your daily life is and, and, and this work that you're actually doing? Because, I, Lewis, i got to tell you, there are many things that you and I are not going to agree on and we haven't agreed on, you know, in the conversations that we've had over the weeks leading up to this. But what you do in the parks is something that I personally would like to come and join you and kind of embed with you, not get embed with you for the listeners that are going to play that on YouTube and do all kinds of shit, okay? But I'd like to embed with you, not just as a journalist and write about it, but I'd like to actually go and help and do some of that work and really experience it on firsthand because I, I am impressed with that aspect of Lewis Arthur. So tell the, tell the listener about that, please. Um. Our family's ministry is Walking for the Forgotten, and it's a Christian ministry. Um, we have three programs. We have Preppers and Patriots, Patriots at Large, and Veterans on Patrol. The Veterans on Patrol is a recognized statewide search and rescue mission in Arizona. Um, we've had senators like John McCain, Mayor Greg Stanton of Phoenix, uh, Michelle Obama, They've all gone out and said that they don't have any more homeless vets in Arizona. What we started doing was going out to find the homeless vets, and then we found out they were getting beaten up and robbed in uh, Phoenix. So we started 24-7 patrols where we actually guard the homeless, whether they're sleeping on a park bench or on a sidewalk overnight. Uh, If we can get them to one of the camps that we build, because we build camps across the state, uh, we get them to those camps. If we can get them off the streets, we get them off of the streets. Um, in regards to the park patrols, that's only at one of our bases, um, Bravo bases in Tucson. It's behind Santa Rita Park, which is in the South Tucson area, and we are in one of the highest crime rate areas. Uh, last week, we had a scream at the park. I was on command. I went out there at the same time the Tucson Police Department did. We found the body of a young man that was stabbed to death. Um, when I saw that body, um, you know, I took our camp dog around and we blocked the guy who did it. Uh, I pulled his girlfriend to the side so the police could apprehend the suspect. Um, when I saw that body, it could have been any one of the homeless vets that we got sitting there at Bravo. And, um, you know, little kids can't use that park and old people can't walk their dogs. And it's just overran with the, the criminal element, the guys that shoot up and leave syringes laying around for kids to find. The guy's smoking spice, which is a synthetic marijuana that makes him retarded. And um, we decided that we were going to start a community patrol. Now, we did a similar option back in November, and we removed over 300 used syringes, including crack pipes and meth pipes, that were discarded in the playground, in the restroom, and at the skate park where the kids skate. Um, Since then, we were averaging one to two needles a week recovery. We've effectively chased off most of the heroin and meth users that are shooting up now we're dealing with the spice and the alcohol and a few of the you know troublemakers that won't uh they won't move off just yet but eventually they will what we do is we go out um and we do a patrol every hour we'll go out with a backpack full of water we give all the homeless in the park cold water any of the kids or families that want one it's all free all of our water is donated we don't sell anything Um, And we talk with the homeless. Um, They know that we're there to defend their constitutional rights, but we are also there to defend the children and the elders and the parents who use that park, too. Um, We draw a central line in almost all of our operations. Uh, Like I said, even though I am an American Christian patriot, um, we do not allow race, religion, or politics 
that sidetracked us from finding our homeless veterans in Arizona. And we've been morphing our other programs to include that so we're all inclusive. Uh, my idea of American is someone that's equal parts, part conservative, part liberal, part libertarian, part independent, part Green Party. They're equal parts because every party should have a representation as long as it's a constitutional one. And um, we don't argue. Um, you won't go to my Facebook. Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say, um, you know, the things that you're talking about right now, there were several several years ago, uh, and I do mean several years ago, but Bill O'Reilly, Fox News, Bill O'Reilly had um, one of the uh, heads of the Veterans Association on his show who was who was specifically there to talk about, uh, O'Reilly had brought him on because he had written an article or something and had put out some statistics about homeless veterans. And um, O'Reilly was on a rant and he was talking about that these veterans are not coming home and living under bridges and blah, 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 blah. And there was nothing that this man could say to him or show him that this is an absolute fact. Can can you talk uh, a little bit and then and then we're going to move into uh, Bundy Ranch and Mallier. So we want to make this, you know, just maybe a couple minutes. Uh, can you talk a little bit about about uh, some of the causes of veteran homelessness? Um, one of the biggest problems we have with the veterans coming back is um, your combat veterans, nine out of ten of them are divorced within five years. So that means returning combat vets, 90% of them end up losing their families. Um, divorce is a big killer. Uh, we believe part of that problem is the pharmaceutical industry and the fact that they are giving 16, 17 prescription pills two weeks after being discharged, and we are over-medicating them. Um, we don't have adequate support for them. And I think one of the biggest problems that I've noticed with uh, the veterans, if you look at most of the ones out there that love, you know, their job in the military and they love the country and they're very passionate, um, you see Americans, and we're arguing over restrooms and we're arguing over politicians, and we're arguing over who's sleeping with who, and we're arguing over who's worshiping who. Um, out here on the streets, I find gay veterans. I find atheist veterans. I found an atheist Christian veteran, you know, and, and for people to think that you can't be gay and Christian, I'm sorry, but I've found them, and I've spoken to them before. Um, the problem is America. It's not their fault. We're allowing them to be over-medicated. We're not investigating the pharmaceutical industry. America's okay with the number of 22 veteran suicides per day. That's not the number. I'm not going to say anything that many of your listeners can't go and research. They came up with 22 per day, and they excluded 21 states. 21 states did not report, including Texas and California. Both of them are in the top five for veteran population. So when we say the number's higher than 22, that's because of all the data that wasn't included in the government report that was released by the CDC and the Pentagon. Uh, military sexual trauma. Military sexual trauma goes undiagnosed. Um, they don't have support groups. I've got a male rape victim in Phoenix. He's been kicked out of two support groups because women aren't comfortable with him being there. And he has a hard time getting people to understand that, yes, he can be a a 300-pound black man that got raped in the military. People look at him, there's like, there's no way you got raped. You know, this man, you know, um, he's very outspoken. His name's Eugene. He shoots videos to tell people his story. Um, there are all kinds of problems that our veterans are facing, and the biggest one is America won't shut up and stop fighting with each other, stop blaming the government for their failures. We can get out here on the streets and save them ourselves if we just set aside the little dumb stuff that divides us. 
Um, so I want to let you know that uh, Emily Seeger from the chat room, um, she, uh, and real briefly, uh, I want to say this about Emily. Emily has been following me and listening to my show uh, since I've been doing the Oregon standoff. I don't think that I knew her before that, uh, but she's been a really great supporter of mine. Her and, and Mark McConnell actually connected, uh, I think, in a, in, in a chat or something like that, uh, at some point over this and have been discussing their different views in a very civilized manner. And she, she's just been very open to understanding, like many of my listeners have been. And she had a, a comment for me to share with you. Um, so I want to make sure that you guys connect, uh, at least after the show. She says she has a friend who has a program to match uh, therapy service dogs with vets, especially those that have PTSD. Um, so that might be something for you guys to connect about. And then for Mark, if you're still listening, she says Mark would be interested in knowing that many of the dogs are pit bulls. <laughs> um, so, so, Lewis, let's um, – and if we have time before before we close out, I want to get back to uh, Veterans on Patrol. But I want to jump uh, real quick. I want to break this down into, like, let's say, like, 10 minutes, you know, 7 to 10 minutes per, per here. Let's jump to Bundy Ranch. Now, you were not at Bundy Ranch the day of the actual face-off. You had been, you know, kind of putting together to mobilize out there, kind of watching the situation, and then, boom, that happened. And so you mobilized and were en route. Um, can you talk a little bit about – uh, once you and uh, your partner uh, jumped in the, the vehicle to head that way, and what was the tension as far as, like, phone calls and correspondence as you were en route? Um, well, when we we loaded up from North Carolina, we probably made about five or six stops along the interstate. People came down, and they loaded up. We only accepted food, water, and medical equipment. Um, we did a humanitarian aid mission to figure out what was going on out there, because uh, I don't believe anything I see on the news, you know, and I saw the left slant and I saw the right slant and the truth somewhere there in the middle. So we went out there to find out what it was. Uh, we had actually contacted Michelle Fiore before we got in there because people on the, um, in the, um, sorry for the beep, but people on the um, ground out there were sending tweets out talking about that the feds were surrounding them. They're not going to let anyone in. So we had contacted the assemblywoman to see what was going on, and she had told us that, you know, we won't have any problem getting in. She gave me her personal cell phone number, and we didn't get have problems getting in. But when we got out there, we knew that we were in some serious trouble. Um, the individuals okay, at Bundy Ranch. Yeah. Hold on, hold on, Lewis. Yeah. Okay, hold on. When you say the assemblywoman, you're talking about assemblywoman Michelle Fiore, correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay, Michelle yes, Fiore. Okay, so Michelle Fiore, the Nevada Assemblywoman, who's now running for Congress, who is one of the leading members of CALS, the Coalition of Western States, that it, that, that organization began uh, spraying from the Bundy Ranch incident. Okay, so this is how she how how much she was involved. You were actually in communications with her while you were en route. Is that correct? Yes, ma'am. Okay, so what did she tell you, Lewis, as far as, like, your safety uh, level of coming in? Um, all she had stated with us to us was that um, she had just left the ranch earlier. I guess Cliven had gotten in front of the cameras again, and so she was there. And, um, and she um, said that there was nothing blocking us from coming in there and that if we had any problems, uh, she gave me her cell phone number, and she told me to call her, and she would make sure we got through. And I explained to her, I said, none of us are armed. Um, we're not out here to, you know, uh, escalate any situation. Um, we're here to find out what's going on, and we want to make sure everyone has food and hygiene and, you know, just your, their basic needs. Uh, because 
from what we saw, there was a big mobilization. And when we got there, there was quite a few people. There was over 70 there the day I got there. So when you got there, uh, you, you encountered some problems right away. Is that correct? When we got there, we didn't encounter problems until I overplayed my hand with Ryan Payne. Um, when we got there, we showed up and we had a North Carolina flag you know, a don't tread on me flag and American flag on the trailers. And, uh, I went up to the Oath Keepers. Um, uh, Daryl was with Justin. I handed him an envelope that had $5,000 to reimburse fuel because the Oath Keepers were raising money online for fuel reimbursement for everyone who came from far away. And, uh, we gave that to him. Um, that was, you know, done quietly. And, uh, none of that was forwarded to the militias or the people who mobilized. They actually used that money for other nefarious purposes, which I won't go into. Um, but we were, we were, we were completely welcomed. Um, I hit the community my first day out there. I got U-Haul to sponsor, uh, us to, uh, run shipments with their trailer and they covered a $700 bill for our ministry that we didn't have to pay. I got several of the stores and um, business owners to um, help send out water and coffee and, you know, we would go to the restaurants and ask them for, like, ketchup packets and things like that. Um, so I was in the community bringing in supplies nonstop and support from the community. And it didn't take long for Jerry DeLamis, who was in command at that time, to take notice of me. And then I latched on to him um, because of all the people that were out there. Uh, he's one of the few people I saw that would pray quietly, and I could tell he was having, like, an internal struggle with what was going on out there. So when you, right away when I said that you ran into problems out there, you said you didn't run into problems until Ryan Payne. Um, so let's let's jump into that. Uh, now, I I have, you know, shared with you in, in conversations uh, over the weeks leading up to you coming on the show, uh, you know, some of the stuff that Mark and I talked about tonight with regards to Ryan and last week and stuff. And you have your your own perspective and your own interactions uh, and dealings with Ryan Payne at Bundy Ranch uh, as as well as things in, in Malheur. But can, can you explain um, – there's, there's a couple things that I want to touch on here, and these, these, these are a lot of questions from listeners, so I'm going to run off a couple things and then kind of let you run with that, okay? People want to know, was it Ryan Payne? Was it Buddha? Because Buddha was also there. Uh, or who was it that actually ordered the snipers in place, the people like Eric Parker? Who, 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 where'd that come from? And, and, and as well, is there any truth to the – hold on, Lewis, as well. Is there any truth to the uh, Nellis Air Force Base story? And then I, I definitely want you to talk about the rumors uh, that were spread with the Oath Keepers about a, 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 an absolute certain drone strike that was going to happen as it was portrayed to them. I can answer the questions regarding to the drone strike. Um, I'm not going to – I can't answer anything that I didn't see or witness myself specifically. I'm only going to tell you what I saw, not what someone else saw, or not what someone else said, you know, unless I, I heard it myself. It. And I, the only thing that I can confirm is um, – because I was there the night of the drone strike that never took place. And uh, the only thing I can confirm is the next day after the meeting where uh, – Ryan Payne, had, they all had circled up and said that they're deserters, they need to get shot in the back, yada, yada. Afterwards, I had followed both Ryan and Buddha down closer to the bunny home, and Ryan had a congratulatory, like, high five with Buddha, saying, I told you it would work, I told you they would believe it. And he was specifically talking about the drone strike, because that's what we just got done talking about in the meeting. 
you know, and um, the the militias wanted the Oath Keepers removed from Bundy Ranch, and that is something that no one out there is going to be able to deny. They wanted Oath Keepers out. We wanted the Oath Keepers to stay there because most of the Oath Keepers are older, they're veterans, or they're ex-law enforcement. Um, they're not, they don't have as many radicals as you have in the militia groups. And militia groups have been doing a good job cleaning themselves up lately. But I'm talking about a few years ago, you know, when everyone's on this, uh, Obama's coming for our guns. Um, you know, the government's going to put us in FEMA camps. Here are all the FEMA coffins. Paranoia and fear was at an all-time high when Bundy Ranch took place. And uh, the Oath Keepers, when they were kind of forced out and Stuart Rhodes took that, he knew that there was no drone coming. There was a barbecue 200 yards from base, and there was like 300 people down there. There's no way the government's going to drone strike a militia compound in front of 300 witnesses who are having a barbecue along the river under the bridge. How, how much uh, – you just made me think of something that I didn't, like, have on my bullet list. It's not, a, it's not an aha kind of question or anything. But um, I know from a lot of the coverage that had come out of Bundy Ranch as well as the Malheur Refuge um, and then in conversations with you guys and other people as well, um, kind of all mixed in, how much actual partying was happening at Bundy Ranch? I mean, how much drugs and drinking was going on and kind of what tiers of the people that were doing that sort of stuff do you know from when you were there and what you experienced? If there were a couple guys drinking, they were keeping it under wraps. Um, they had one guy removed that uh, that I had caught with uh, methamphetamines down by the river at a camp, and he was bringing some meth up to just a couple of the guys. But if you want to talk about drugs and alcohol, I can tell you probably about 95 to 98% of them, um, these guys were dead sober, um, and they were dead serious. Um, and, you know, there wasn't that wasn't a big issue at Bundy Ranch. When there was little small issues with the people, they dealt with it. Um, that's one of the things I liked about the way Jerry handled things, you know, when those issues came up. But um, as far as, you know, a bunch of drinking and partying going on, I mean, that wasn't the case. Uh, not not the way that that sounds at all. Oh, okay. And so then, um, so let's, uh, let's, let's, Let's talk a little bit more about the alleged, uh, you know, the coming drone strike that everybody, uh, you know, or the Oath Keepers, you know, had this rumor had gotten spread. It was allegedly a credible person. They even interviewed him, blah, 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 blah. So who, who had motive at Bundy Ranch, um, you know, I mean, what, what, was, what would be the motive for somebody to, to spread that? Why would somebody want Oath Keepers gone, Lewis? Ryan was um, the community liaison, basically. Uh, he was a liaison between the militias and the Bunny family, and he was supposed to be a buffer zone, and he was supposed to monitor the militias. Uh, what the family didn't realize was they had picked the wolf in sheep's clothing, and he was actively planning, um, encouraging people to start going on the offensive. Uh, he brought in, uh, invited in Steve Curry and the Citizens Action Network, and when you get a bunch of people saying that we can legally form a Commonwealth grand jury, uh, we can get a group right now and go arrest the sheriff, they actively were planning to arrest Sheriff Gillespie and Harry Reid. Um, and Steve Curry was the one who pitched that to Ryan Payne. I don't know what the Bundys say were because Ryan kept me away from that family once he found out I was recording everybody. And I was trying to give the Bundys 
all the recordings so they would know that they have bad people down there at their house and that these people are putting them at risk. And But I couldn't, the uh, bunnies didn't want anything to do with me. They heard I was crazy, a fed, and everything else, so. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's just the, the, the paranoia. And now, let, let me preface this. I can understand in those kind of situations why people are paranoid. I mean, that's just the way it is. I mean, you put yourself, even without, you know, a whole bunch of loaded guns and whatever else, it's easy to get paranoid in, in the height of stuff. And it's easy to look sideways at people. Um, I know I have uh, at different events, and I know people look sideways at me at different events. And, um, I mean, that's just kind of nature of the beast. But, did, did you get, uh, even though you were, you know, had, you know, some issues with regards to Ryan and stuff like that, were you, I mean, it's clear that there's a lot of people that realize there's something different about Ryan Payne and his involvement in these things. Can you talk a little bit more about Ryan Payne and kind of his whole mental state and really what his goals are? Because I think that the listeners need to understand uh, and not just for me, who does not know Ryan Payne, never had a personal interaction with Ryan Payne, but from those whose lives were also at stake or uh, to be somebody's backing, if their life was, what is it about Ryan Payne that's so different than Ammon Bundy, um, you know, or Mark McConnell or yourself as far as his agenda? Um. I can't speak to his really mental. Uh, he made some comments to me in private. Uh, that's why I went to Oregon. We can get to that later. But um, I can tell you that when I look at uh, Ammon Bundy, Ryan Payne, Buddha, uh, you know, uh, Pete Santelli, uh, Jerry DeLamis, uh, so many people that were at Bundy Ranch with us, and I'm just going to be completely honest with you here. These are upset Americans. They are frustrated. They are beyond pissed off at everything that is taking place in this country. Now, they only see one side, and they seem to think that all liberals are to blame or Barack Obama is to blame. But, um, you know, and that's the frustrating part is they, they don't see that, you know, we're our own enemy. Um, we're the ones fighting with our neighbors. Uh, we're the ones, you know, uh, Melvin Lee made a great video one day talking about laws, public safety. You got to have all these laws because we can't police and check ourselves or check our own communities. You got to have all these signs on all these roads for public safety. Um, people are upset. And I want to tell everybody that as far as the land grabs in the West, my family stands with the ranchers. Um, but we were hoping that the Tamaros and Battle Mountain would have been the poster child for what the ranchers were going through because they've always paid their permits. Um, they've always paid their taxes. They had no issues whatsoever with not paying the BLM, but the BLM continued to take land and continued to take land, which forced them to sell their cattle, sell their cattle, and now they're bankrupt. Um, the BLM, I'm not blaming the agents. Um, the problem we have here is we have the environmental lobby winning lawsuit after lawsuit, um, and they're impacting ranchers who have taken care of that land for decades. And so I understand with uh, a lot of the people, and I understand their frustrations. What um, I stand against is when it goes to us fighting our own people. 
Louis, okay, I, I get that, but I have to, I ha, I have to address what you just said. Is it not equally fair that the environmentalists out there have their own good causes and good reasons and facts as well, and that that somehow that we, as a citizenry, we do have to get back to the center, which means we need to meet somewhere in the middle. Well, absolutely. I'm not saying environmentalists are bad. I mean, I'm a guy that takes uh, – I, I go out with homeless veterans, and we clean up trash in the desert and the national forests all the time. We do cleanups on the streets. We clean up the washes. We go underground in the tunnels, remove trash. You know, um, I'm not saying the environmental lobby is bad. What I'm saying is everyone is placing all the blame on the BLM and the agents that work within the BLM, uh, much like they're placing the blame on the FBI for what happened to Lavoy Finnegan, or they're blaming Mark McConnell. Um, they're blaming everything and everyone but themselves. We all contribute to polluting this environment, every single one of us. Okay, we all contribute to the divisiveness because we're picking Republicans or Democrats or Libertarians, and we automatically sever ourselves from the rest of our country folk. Instead of us all setting aside that nonsense, you know, and coming together, we're keeping ourselves divided, and we're fighting with each other, and that's not going to solve the problem. And fighting against the government is a waste of time. I've done the protests, I've done the petitions, I've done the calls, I've been to D.C., went to D.C. five times, you know, million vet march, bikers to D.C., truckers to D.C., Reclaim America Now, and the G.C. D.C. job march. In one year, I went to D.C., and we had five different times our families were represented at those events. They don't listen to us. And the reason why they don't listen to us, because we are one side coming up to complain about our problems. Um, well, I believe we should do is we should police our own, just like uh, Mark and Melvin, everyone's trying to get the militias to do. Let's start weeding out these radicals. Militia is about community. It's not about guns fighting the government. Militia is about community defending their citizens and their neighbors. Not about going and on the offense. And taking care. And taking care. And yes. let's, let's, it's not just about defense. It's about taking care of one another. Is that not the real truth of what you guys are trying to do? The people that that were against some of these extreme things that have happened that are, in a sense, scrambling now, like, oh, my gosh, people have just painted us in all these ways, and we are not all this way. And when you're saying police your own, I absolutely agree. I think one of the biggest mistakes that Alan Bundy made was allowing himself and others to make an open call to arms without vetting the people that came into there. But that being said, it, it just, just, you know, yes, in, in the cases like when we think about what happened with Hurricane Katrina, if we would have had uh, an organized, uh, a thoughtful and respectable and responsible militia that could have jumped in there and helped out, if reporters were getting in, why the hell couldn't the government get in there to help instead of letting all these people starve, die, and all the other stuff? So there are many, many reasons for us to understand how this is important and how it can and should play out in the country, but at the same time, at the bare basics, it really is about community. It really, really is about taking care of your own community first before you jump in and stick your nose in someone else's. Lewis, I want to jump straight from that over to Burns, Oregon. So let's talk about when you went to Malheur. Can you run that down? Um, yeah, when we got up there, uh, Ryan, I didn't know it was Mark McConnell at the time, but he was with Ryan Payne. They had walked up to me when I was uh, staking down a GP uh one of the GP medium tents. We set our base directly across from the compound where they were on the other side of the media. 
we threw up our veteran suicide 22 day banner because every time we mobilize, we, we bring awareness with us. Um, and that's for the moms of the 22 who are in our ministry. Uh, we went unarmed and, um, you know, when I went down into the community after I asked Ryan, I looked at him, I said, you want me to take you home? He knew what I was referring to. And I knew for a fact he wasn't going to go. And he says, I'm not sure I want to go anywhere with you or something like that. And I said, I got nothing else to talk to you about. I went down into the community and all I saw was sign after sign, Bundy's go home, militias go home. I started talking to the people in that community. Now, um, overwhelmingly, a majority of the people did not think that sending the Hammonds back to prison was the right thing to do. Um, but overwhelmingly, the majority of the people did not want Arizona State Militia, Ammon Bundy, and other militias to come into their state to take over their refuge. And you're basically going into someone else's backyard and saying, you have to fight for your rights. Well, that's not our job. Our job is to make sure we maintain our rights in our own backyard. And if someone needs our assistance, we go and help them. But we can't force anyone to stand up and take land back or anything like that. And that's exactly what you had. And when I went and I left that uh, community and I went and I talked to 22 people, um, that's my goal every day is to meet 22 people. And I, I exceed it all the time, but I meet 22 new people every day. Um, and uh, the people I talked to when I went back, I was just, I was beyond just everything they told us was a lie. The community supporting us. We have broad support in the community. We're going to be doing this. We're going to be doing that. Um, and I went back and I told my co-founder, James and uh, Jeff, and I said, we're going to go down. Uh, we're going to find Jody because she was one of the first VOP members in the state of Arizona. She was the first person follow me in her wheelchair, and she was packing heat because I don't carry a gun. I go out with a flag and a Bible and a pack full of water and food. Um, but she had my back in a dangerous area. Um, she was there the day after our camp was attacked by Black Lives Matters, and a homeless vet got busted in the back of the head with the board. She is a woman that I love dear to my heart, and we wanted to get her out. When we tried to go down there, the security tried to stop me. I moved around the guy, and then he had raised the flashlight to hit me in the back of the head. My co-founder, James uh, McCourt, two-stroke, he had grabbed the guy. They had rustled up against the truck. The guy had cut his hand. I continued down to the compound. Blaine Cooper and them come flying by in a truck calling my name. I ignored him. Uh, the closer I got, then all of a sudden I just felt a blast. I got punched in the back of the head. I stumbled, um, but... Uh, you know, I didn't lose consciousness or, you know, uh, get dazed or anything. When I turned around and looked, Blaine Cooper was standing there with his fists up, jumping around like he wants something. Uh, Jeff had kind of moved in and gotten hit. I moved, moved the other two guys away from Jeff. Um, I will say this, uh, and we didn't really uh, – Jeff didn't put it in the police report. I refused to press charges. I'm not trying to get anyone put in jail because I see a bunch of people uh, reacting on emotion. And I think that if we could channel their energy to something positive, that they can do wonderful things. And I wasn't trying to get anyone in jail, but I was very upset that some of the militia members that I had known out there, and they know me, that they would point their ARs at me, cite me in on their guns, knowing that I'm unarmed. We, we pulled out after the punches started coming our way and the guns were pointed at us. I pulled our guys out. Uh, then we went back up. And Jeff had to go to the hospital, and we just left the next morning. Um, but uh, at that point, I went out and I told everyone on our side to no, not send supplies, to not go out there. I just asked them to keep an eye on what was going on and pray. 
because I knew right away Ryan Payne was going to be living his fantasy. He was wanting to spark his civil war. And, you know, they were radicalizing young kids. I was seeing people who had no idea about the BLM and people like John Ritzheimer has no idea about the articles and clauses he was citing in the Constitution until he had a 20-minute conversation with Ammon Bundy. Then he's an expert telling everyone else, it's in this. They can't do this, you know, and none of that helps solve the problem. And none of it justifies going into someone else's backyard, taking women and children to a gunfight, you know, you tell the community it's going to be a peaceful rally, and then you go and you take over a refuge to make a stand. And they had hoped they would redo what they did at Bundy Ranch, but I'm glad that there are people there um, like Mark and Melvin. They were getting the good guys out before they were too radicalized, before they ended up in jail too. And I think they did a wonderful uh, job. Lewis, I need you to clarify something. I'm getting kind of a whole lot of feedback on one portion of what you just said, um, and that was that. Did you did you just say that that guns were pointed at you in this altercation? When the altercation happened, guns were pointed at us. I saw the guns. There was two ARs pointed at me, and another guy had his pistol. Now that was hold, held in his hand down, but two rifles were pointed at me specifically, and I had saw those two rifles. When the police had asked us, we had said no. You know, I was the last thing, you know, I I didn't want, that that would have given them any excuse to go, and I just didn't want to be the cause of anyone dying there. My job was to try to get Ryan Payne to go home, and then at that failed, it was to get the women and children out. When that failed, I left, and other people finished that job, and then I just washed my hands with them. You know, there's nothing else we can do. They won't listen. They, They just won't listen. Um, Okay, so I I just want to say something. We have, uh, by all appearances, John Ritzheimer is in our chat room and listening to the show tonight. I have cautioned him uh, a few times in chat because, A, I have no real way while I'm on the show to verify that it's him. Uh, By the communications he's putting through, it does sound like it, it is him. Um, and we are running out of time. We really are down to minutes here. Uh, he had provided a link earlier in the show when we were talking about the divorce rates and military divorce rates, and he wanted to point out in this link that the the divorce rates in the military, according to military.com link that he sent, is uh, it's starting to decline. Um, I have written long before the Oregon standoff thing when I used to write about all sorts of things uh, often about uh, military divorce rates uh, and the problems within marriages and the military and the separations that happen. Um, and I don't, I don't mean the, the separations of the couples first, but I mean the separations of long durations apart and, and how that prelays. So, John, thank you for that link. Uh, John says that he his uh, pre-release, if it really is him, that it has been adjusted where he it's okay for him to talk and it's okay for everybody to know it's him. So uh, if it is, John, thanks for the input. John is uh, trying to stress that no guns were pointed at anybody. Um, so, uh, again, we're down to the wire here, Lewis, uh, but John is absolutely calling out and saying that no guns were pointing at anybody. Please address that. Um, I don't have to address it. I stated what happened, and that's what I saw, and I only talk about what I've seen or witnessed personally. So John wasn't there down there when the assaults were taking place. Uh, so I don't see how he can say that any guns weren't pointed at us when he wasn't there when Blaine Cooper was punching on my staff. Okay, and so I think, and, and to be fair, I think that someone in John's position would want to make sure because that's part of their whole peaceful protest defense, so it makes sense that, that John would want to stress that, but if he was not an eyewitness to that altercation, then he simply cannot 
saved that there were no guns pointed in anybody if he wasn't there to see it. Um, okay, so he can I say wanted to really watch. quickly. He says a whole lot of stuff. So well, he no, says I a lot that. of stuff, and I, a lot of it isn't true. So he can say what he wants. I don't care what he says. Right, right. No, I get that. But I want to point out to the listener that unless you're an eyewitness to something or you have documentation, you don't have a fact. It's just your opinion of whatever you want to portray. And what we all, from all sides of this, we need to really be talking about the the real facts and stop interjecting these forceful opinions based on whatever our own agendas or own needs, whatever they may be, are. And we're running out of time, and and literally we've got about 60 seconds. I want to say something about Odella Sharp uh, with regards to having you on the phone because you, you've had interda- interactions with the Sharp family, particularly Adalis, um back from the Bundy Ranch time. And it's my understanding that Adalis Sharp was not really, uh, I mean, she was always kind of a little, and, and excuse me, Victoria, or anyone that's listening, I don't mean this insultive. I, I just want to choose my words uh, to, for all the listeners. And she, to some people, she was a little kookier off. But when it came down to her involvement, when she got involved with the Bundys and stuff, sometime around Bundy Ranch or whatever, but pre- Predominantly, after the whole Bundy Ranch thing, something changed with her as far as her kind of her demeanor and her belief system, and her kind of she kind of became radicalized. Is is that correct in your experience? Um, I would just say that um, I love Ophelia's, um, and she is a fellow uh, Christian, and um, I can say that Bundy Ranch had a taint on so many of people that went out there. And, you know, I believe she was tainted, but I've been with her and her children. I was the one there when Stuart Rhodes tried to have them abducted into the hotel room the night of the drone strike. Um, I've always defended her. I don't know what's going on with her case entirely, but I do know she's a child of God, and I do know she got wrapped up in some of the stuff that, you know, we're just not supposed to be getting involved in. So um, I I pray for her, and I hope that, yeah. I, and, and, and that's great. I appreciate what you said. And I'm going to say a little bit more about that in the close of my show because and that's why I wanted to end with you with that because um, there's something really important that I've been trying to convey to my listeners and my readers for months uh, and, and, and or probably years, long before the Oregon standoff happened. So, Lewis, thank you so much for coming on. I definitely want to have you come back on again uh, and sooner versus later uh, when, when you have the time, if that works for you. Um, yes, ma'am. All right, no thanks so much. I really, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much, Lewis. All right, so here, here's the deal. Here's what I want to say in these last final uh, few minutes of the show. If it is, in fact, true that Odella Sharp was a different person uh, before Bundy Ranch, one of the things is many of these people were very emboldened, and I think that the majority of the people that are even aware of what happened at Bundy Ranch and then the Oregon standoff and anything in between realize that, they're, they were emboldened because nothing happened for so long, you know, nearly two years before any charges came down. People thought that they could do whatever they want. They thought that they had really gone up against the man. When you're in the height of any kind of a, a big activist situation with a whole lot of people whose, whose passion and adrenaline is running, it doesn't matter what your cause is at all, but there is this weird thing that happens. And when you get very, very deeply ingrained and embedded involved in these lives, it really changes who you are. That's what happened to me. It changed who I was in some parts for the better, but in many parts for the worse. And for many, many years, I was not necessarily the best mother. And and I say that it wasn't because I had done something wrong, but it was because I spent all my time on the cause. 
Okay, I spent all my time going and traveling and doing the in the streets thing and in your face thing and instead of taking care of my own community in my household, okay, in my household and my own community in my neighborhood and in my town, my state and all of that and, and then going on from there. I used to shun local happenings. I wanted to be involved in the national stuff. But there is a thing that feeds into this, and there are some personalities that are more susceptible to this. Obviously, mine was one of them. I was one of the most well-known in the day activists, particularly with 9-11 Truth, and that does not mean that I've changed my mind about what I believe about 9-11. But I also do not believe that everything that happens is a conspiracy. I also am willing to admit that maybe some of the things I think I know could be wrong, and we need people to accept that to be true about themselves because it is true about every single one of us. We say things as if they're facts when there are mere opinions. And it's not it's not acceptable because that is the very thing that is, is causing all of these problems. And you, excuse me. And you know I'm gonna say this because I, I say it all the time, but those who seek only to confirm their, their biases they're not seeking truth anymore. 